Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this section, we will be doing our second recap on Chapter 5 of Peace, the last chapter of the novel. We'll be covering pages 290 to 302 in the Orb 2012 edition. In this section, we'll be getting another ghost story, uh, one of, I don't know, 11, 12, 200 that we've had in peace so far. And we'll be learning a little bit about Weir's time as president of the Orange Juice Company. Right. This section picks up immediately after the letter from Charles Turner that we really devoted most of the previous episode to. Weir is still in his office. He's still sitting at his desk with the letter in his hand, or really more precisely, he's holding the envelope that it came in. And out of that envelope now comes two faded sepia photographs. Uh, Old-timey is the compound adjective I would use here to describe what these pictures look like. And the question on Weir's mind is, just how old are these photographs? Now, to get some help with that, he pushes a little button on his desk to summon his secretary, Miss Burkhead. Uh, Miss Burkhead has been something of a ghost in this book. She's a, a figure mentioned quite frequently, but who never actually appears. And she's not going to appear now, either. Instead, there is another woman. This woman is Amy Haddow, who is the secretary of one of the vice presidents and is filling in today because Miss Burkhead is sick. Now, she looks at the photographs and pronounces that they are quite old. And here is where we learn what they show. One of the figures is a very tall man, close to seven feet tall. So this must be Tom Levine, who is the the giant at Charles Turner's circus. And the other is a woman. Amy Haddow says that this woman looks like a tramp, which is uh, a word that I haven't encountered in a long time. But uh, at any rate, we can assume, I think from this word choice, that this is one of the young women involved in the circus's girl show. But the point is that Weir is wondering if these photos are so old that the people in them must be dead. And now he thinks that they must be dead, and Amy Haddow agrees. But that is... Very weird, because the letter from Charles Turner is recent, and these are photographs of people working at the circus right now. And so it seems that what's going on here is that the boundary between Weir's memory of these episodes and the present Weir, who is telling us this story, that boundary is breaking down. And this continues. It goes on. There's another letter on the desk. It is not for Weir, actually. It's for Julia Smart, and it's from Professor Peacock, but it's nailed down. And so with this bit of information, we now realize that Weir is seeing the desk as it exists in his mansion and not in the office. And Weir realizes this too. He decides to stop remembering and instead to go find that Persian room again and just hang out there for a while. But then he doesn't, as we will see in the next scene. But in all, this has been a really, really strange scene in which some of these boundaries are breaking. It's really disorienting. Yeah, it really is. I mean, the pictures in particular, I'm going to talk about the Persian room and stuff like that in the next section, but the pictures in particular look old, as you've pointed out, and the people in them are likely dead. And so what this reminds me of, and we'll have another moment of this in this chapter, is the reference to Morister's description of hell in chapter four, of hell being a place where people have faces of those long dead. So I don't think that we can say then precisely when this picture was taken, um, but the picture of this uh, tramp seems to me to be a picture of Candy, since we're as interested in her pictures, though it could be of Doris and the Giant. But in terms of the when this picture was taken, 
Amy Haddow makes a reference to Carol Lombard, who died in a plane crash in 1942 at the age of 33. Now, the girl in the picture could actually just look like Carol Lombard in terms of her face, but to me, it feels as though it's more likely that she has a certain kind of fashion, hairstyle, makeup style that reminds Amy of Carol Lombard. I'm making this judgment only because of my experience watching older movies from the 30s and 40s when the cultural references that attach themselves to entertainers are missing for the audience. And so when you don't have those cultural references, it's really hard to distinguish them from one another. The same way in like 50 years, people might have a hard time distinguishing like Jessica Chastain and Amy Adams or something like that. But in particular in film, uh, especially like decade by decade, women, women in particular, all adhere to really rigid, it seems to me, beauty conventions, where if, you, if you're not familiar with those cultural attachments, the tabloids, reading about their life, seeing them outside of movies and USO shows or whatever, they do seem to blend together. And so I know that the 40s is still only 30 years prior to maybe the moment uh, in this book where this conversation is taking place, which is enough time for these cultural points to linger. I do think that Amy Haddow is making a reference to beauty conventions in that time period and thinking of Carol Lombard more than she's saying this woman has a face like Carol Lombard. Uh, I've gone too far afield here, I'm afraid. Uh, So I guess what I'm trying to say is (laughs) this picture might have been taken in the 30s or very early 40s. Yeah, I mean, I agree with your assessment here. And and this goes back to something we were talking about then in the previous episode where we were wondering about the you know, the veracity of the the Julia Smart ghost story. And you brought up the question of, or raised the question of whether or not that even happened to Julia Smart and maybe it happened to Weir instead. But now I'm wondering when this letter was written and when that story took place and who the letter was addressed to. And honestly, at this point, I'm wondering, is Weir a real person? Is Weir the one actually telling us any of of this? I mean, all of the, the time seems to have broken down here, because this all should be taking place in the 60s at this point, not the 40s or you know even the 50s. So it's very strange. Something has definitely gone timey-wimey here. It answers zero questions and raises many. I think there are so many approaches to making sense of this. And I cannot wait. I literally can't wait until we get to our final wrap-up episodes, because I have like two really distinct readings that I'm like juggling around in my head. And I'm sure you have just as many. You're trying to make sense of what any of this means. Yeah. I mean, I do think that uh, the last several episodes of of chapter four and and now have been a lot of us biting our tongue and really champing at the bit to go get to the wrap up episode. But we're going to do our homework here. We're going to do our due diligence and take this story paragraph by paragraph until the end, no matter how excited we are to get to that end. Yeah, absolutely. I have one more thing to say about this section really briefly. And it's this, that Weir says that he's never met the people in the photographs. And so maybe that narrows down the people that Weir and Charles were talking about in dinner, unless it's the case that they were not talking about people they knew in common. And Charles was just talking about interesting people he knew and worked with. But if it is the case that they knew anyone in common, I think it may somehow be the case that that Weir knows Mrs. Mason. But what that means again, and what that means, especially when he's 
keep trying to get pictures of her daughter. All of that's kind of gross and, and up in the air. Yeah. Again, I just keep going back to the idea that Weir has actually attended this circus, maybe has met behind the scenes. You know, he's gotten a VIP pass to the backstage circus stuff and met all these people. It seems like that would show up in previous chapters, but you know, that's not what kind of book this is. This is the kind of book <laughs> where important stuff doesn't show up in previous chapters. Well, all right. So at this point, Weir is ready to be back in his mansion and go find the Persian realm. But when he leaves his replica office, he finds himself back in his memory of the corridor outside the real office rather than in the hallway of his house. Amy Haddow is still at the desk, and now a man named Dan French is walking down the hallway to talk to Weir. Dan French is one of the company executives. He's in charge of PR, but he's actually been an employee of the company for his entire adult life. He was in sales for a long time and had worked in the production plant during college. In fact, working in the production plant is how he paid for college. And Dan is not alone as he's walking down the hallway. He is with a reporter named Fred Thurlow. And Weir and Dan are going to give Fred Thurlow a a tour of the facility for an article that he is writing. This article is about the decline in American manufacturing, also then the economic woes of the area around Cashinsville, and of course, America more broadly. Now, since we have never pinned down precise dates for this story, it is hard to say if Wolf has in mind here one of the formal recessions or not. But I do want us to remember here that this book was finished and on the market in 1972. And so he is definitely not referring to anything related to the 1973 oil crisis, even though that is probably something that contemporary readers, someone who bought this book hot off the press, would have had in mind. The actual writing of this book predates that. But at any rate, the point is that manufacturing is in decline for some reason, but this company, the juice company, hasn't been hit very hard by that, and this is an article about why and how. We don't get a whole lot of detail about this, but the plant pays its employees around 22% better than similar jobs at other businesses in the region. But the company has cut some salaries and also some fringe benefits for non-union employees, which I think mostly means management. We also learn here that there is a board of directors, and what that means is that this is a public stock company, and it's not Weir's private business, though that is how it is felt throughout the book. Uh, Though I will say that almost certainly Weir is the largest shareholder. Now, as you said, Brandon, at the top of the episode, we are about to get a ghost story because uh, that's what Wolf does. But before we transition to that, we should say a few more words, I think, about the plant because we get a much more detailed description of the product here. Basically, what they make is tang. It's not actual orange juice, but it does kind of taste like orange juice. And it comes in two forms. There's a powder that you mix with water, and then there is a frozen concentrate. Uh, But of course, we know already that this all comes from potatoes. And so here in this section, we are getting a ton of Wolf the Engineer, but I think we are also getting a ton of the Wolf who wrote for Lesson and Hour of Trust. Yeah, I, I think we get a lot of the wolf uh, for lesson in this chapter and, you know, some similarities between what this chapter has to say and some of what for lesson has to say really start here in this section. You know, on its surface, this chapter deals with manufacturing and its excesses and the deadly absurdity that underscores corporate 
culture or work culture. So all of that sort of begins here. And we're going to get more of that as the chapter goes along. But what jumped out to me immediately was the proximity between Dan French being mentioned and the Persian room being brought up, because this is not the first time in the novel that they are mentioned together. On page 106 of the Orb 20. 12 edition. Weir is thinking again about the Persian room. He's telling us a little bit about it and thinking that he can find the room. And he says that, or I interpret what he says in that section in this way, that he has to take the door to the corridor opposite the picture of Dan French, giving him a box from the company uh, when he was 50s. And so these two characters, this character in this room being mentioned together twice, is enough of a coincidence to, or maybe I should say coincidence to give the right emphasis there, uh, <laughs> to suggest meaning. But in any event, this bit about the Persian room in this chapter gives me the sense that Weir is looking for something in the realm of escape and fantasy, escape from work and escape into an exotic fantasy. He wants to lounge around and smoke hashish. And he says, watch his dancing girls. And I guess we just have to think about the degree to which this is something that Weir has regularly gotten up to in his life. Yeah, I mean, the dancing girls bit, I guess, is something to do with the Persianness of the room in, in some way that he's got some idea about, well, it's an orientalizing idea, right, about a, an exotic culture. But then we also have had literal, real dancing girls in this chapter, in the, the letter from Charles Turner. This this section opens with a, a photograph of a very real dancing girl. And so, yeah, I think that it's likely that Weir is someone who not infrequently has gone to see Dancing Girls. Yeah, I, I think that's the case. So it's pretty strange and uh, definitely gets us to think about what Weir has, has been up to in the evenings. Uh, whether or not he has access to hashish, I think, is anyone's guess. But I do <laughs> want to emphasize here the fact that about Dan French rather than the Persian Room, that Dan French is a PR guy and that what's happening now is that he's trying to get the company some good PR while the valley, the whole geographic area that the factory is situated within, is going through some kind of economic downturn. And 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 Weir, I think, is savvy. He's on to this fact that what Dan is up to, and he clearly wants the factory to succeed. So I think that we have to take Weir's answers from the reporter that he's he's you know from the reporter's questions as an attempt to generate good press for the company. And the main hint we get that that leads us to this conclusion is when Weir is questioned about whether or not he has taken a pay reduction. Weir's response is that, yeah, of course I, I want to, but my hands are tied. I'm not allowed to reduce my own salary because that has to be approved by the board. And this is a, a perfect answer. You know, he really is saying that his hands are tied. But when Weir is asked about cutting other people's salaries, his answer is about the union. And the union, he says, doesn't allow it. And that indicates to me that maybe he's tried to reduce his employees' salaries, but has begrudgingly had to honor the union contract. And that what this means is that the non-union workers of the company have taken the hit in cutting overhead costs, you know, except for him and probably the whole executive suite. 
So really who's taking the hit are the administrative workers, the accountants, the secretaries, and so on. And Weir goes on to say that the employees who are taking the hit of reducing overhead are glad to sacrifice because it's for the good of the company. And I, I can just imagine this scene playing out here with Weir smiling and giving great answers to this reporter. And then behind closed doors, you know, like flipping out at something and screaming at people for even letting a journalist in the building in the first place. Um, and I'll point out another example of why I think this might be the real Weir when we get to it. I agree. I think this is exactly the the picture of what this would be like. You know, if we looked in another room where people were aware that there was a reporter here and so on, or uh, someone's just gotten news that their health benefits are being cut in some way, or they're being expected to contribute more out-of-pocket costs to their health benefits now because, hey, they're not in the union or something like that. Uh, but, but hey, we're going to have a pizza party later or, or a melon party later, maybe, <laughs> right. is the, the joke we should be making now, I guess, yes. right? Or yeah. uh, a music dance experience or something. Yeah. So not, we should not all be happy for that. a waffle party, though. Uh, that's, uh, haven't earned that yet. Yeah. Have not. That's very special. These are all severance references for, for people who haven't seen the show. Yeah, we should actually probably do a bonus episode on on that show because that show felt like an adaptation of Four Lesson. Oof, uh, for sure. Right. But all right, I think now that we're we're looking that far ahead, let's go get to this ghost story, <laughs> or at least something that begins as a ghost story. Anyway. So Weir is accompanying Dan French and Fred Thurlow on this tour of the plant, and they come to the cold storage facility. This is kept at 10 degrees Fahrenheit because it needs to be cold enough to freeze the juice as soon as it's set down in here so that it doesn't have time to ferment. And this facility is basically a giant walk-in freezer. And I think if you've ever had any kind of food industry job, then you can envision what this is like. And the deal is that someone once died in this massive walk-in refrigerator. And now there are stories about his ghost haunting the plant late at night. And this happened a long time ago, at least from the perspective of this tour, which must be happening, I guess, in the mid or even late 1960s, though, as always, we're sometimes confused about, about the dates here. But at any rate, it was 1938. That's an absolute date that we are given here. And the locking mechanism froze and got jammed when someone was inside. And since it was the late shift, no one heard him trying to get out. And so he froze to death. Now, this is the story as Dan French tells it to the reporter. But later, Weir tells Dan that he knows better. It was not an accident at all. It was actually a prank. The person who died was only 18, so he was the new guy, and his co-workers locked him in there. You know, maybe this was a hazing ritual, though Weir doesn't say that, but we can envision that, I think. At any rate, somebody stayed late after everyone else left, and that person was supposed to let the new guy out. But he didn't. This guy who was supposed to let him out was not much older than the new guy, and he got frightened, and he went home. Uh, I mean, he didn't just up and leave. He, he thought that the guy was about to get out on his own, and that's actually what frightened him, or at least it's, it's part of what frightened him. And this is already a pretty distressing story, I have to say. But on top of all of this, the company covered it all up and then just installed a new door with a, a mechanism that couldn't be locked from the outside, you know, like it was in this episode, this prank gone horribly wrong. And Weir knows all of this because he was already working at the plant. He says he was just two years out of college at this point. Now, there are a number of questions that we might ask about this story, about Weir's knowledge of it, but it is this last detail that I want to emphasize before we pause, because it does 
I I think, finally, give us something close to a definitive answer about when basically everything in this novel has been taking place. Because if Weir was two years out of college in 1938, that means he was 24 in 1938, and that then would mean that he was born in 1914. That then will let us do some fairly simple math to keep track of when the various episodes all throughout the novel are. And, you know, this is something we're going to want to do when we both go read the entire book again before our final set of wrap-up episodes. And so I'm glad, finally, like 10 pages to go, we get a date like this. I know, right? I mean, the the timeline aspect of the freezer prank is really fascinating. And yeah, it is absolutely meant to be a clue as to not only what's going on with the freezer prank, I think, you know, who was working at the company and so on. Um, but also to, to kind of uh, pull the tighten up the strings of the whole novel. You know, you and I are using a probabilistic sort of analysis here to determine Weir's age. It's really highly likely that he was 24 in 1938, being two years out of college. He might have been 25, which also might make sense too, given um, the emphasis he puts on being 25 in one of the dreams and kind of the last time he was feeling good. But yeah. Weir knows a lot about what happened here, like really specific details. And so that leads us to believe either he was on the investigation squad, you know, of what happened, or maybe he was involved with the prank itself, which uh, maybe we'll get a hint to a little bit later in this chapter. But the most important thing is we now know why upper management didn't like pranksters like Aaron Gold, as we saw in chapter four. Right. It has all come full circle. And I'm, I'm looking forward to speculating about whether or not Weir was involved in this. I'll, I'll save my comments on that until that be, you know, we get to the discussion episode for this chapter. To me, the core mystery of the novel has been, why doesn't upper management like pranksters? So I'm, I'm really glad we got closure on that. Well, let's let's talk about Dan French for a moment. Uh, we've talked a little bit about him, so I'm going to reemphasize some things here. He he worked his way up from the bottom of the plant, including working in the freezer. Now he's the head of the PR department. He's public facing uh, for the Orange Juice Company, and as I mentioned before, he is the person who presented Weir with some kind of gift when he turned fifty on behalf of the employees. Weir can't remember what it was—a cigar box, maybe. Who knows? He doesn't care. You know. And and so we suspect that Weir was president of the company at that time, though he must have recently become the president based on some other information we have. He could have also just been at the company for 25 years or so or 30 years and is getting a gift on, on behalf of the employees. Uh, but that phrase, on behalf of the employees, suggests to me that it's, you know, he was the president. But what I really want to say here about Dan is this line that Wolf throws out that really startled me. Uh, Weir asks Dan if Dan has ever been locked in the freezer. And Dan's response is, I'm here, aren't I? And this question to me indicates, as you suggested, Glenn, that being locked in the freezer was a sorting phasing ritual that perhaps didn't stop and hasn't stopped since that person died in there. And in fact, the fact that there would be a ghost in the freezer makes that hazing all the more, I don't know, delicious to the pranksters. But I I still find this line, I'm here, aren't I, a pretty puzzling response to the question. Like, is we're asking Dan if he was the one who died in the freezer? I mean, that is the sixth sense reading of this story that I was not <laughs> I was not anticipating you would advocate for, but I suppose so. But uh, even setting that aside, there is the ambiguity here of this means obviously not because I'm still alive. I didn't die. Or it means, well, 
yes, I, I used to work in this part of the plant. And so, of course, I have been because it's a hazing ritual and has been for decades. I do think that's more likely. I, I have worked in food service. It's a job that I had in high school and was not subjected to a kind of formal hazing ritual like this. But everyone who worked in the restaurant I worked in was not locked in the, the walk-in freezer or walk-in refrigerator. We had one of, one of each, you know, never locked in there, but always closed in there for a few minutes. It was just a funny thing to teenagers. Uh, it seems like a horrible, brutal thing to do now, Think you know, looking back on it. But it was, it was simply a fact of what it was to work in that kitchen. And I imagine that this is a story everyone who's ever worked in a restaurant has. Yeah, I think restaurants are, are, are known specifically for their hazing rituals. I guess restaurants in the Russian army are the are the last two places where you're guaranteed <laughs> a, a hazing of some kind. There, there are two more really brief things I want to I want to point out here th that we get in this section. Uh, the first is that we get another Twain reference. This time it's to Tom Sawyer. Um, and we get our requisite mention of Native Americans. But this time it's a reference to Injun Joe. And this reference, combined with the exoticized or orientalized, as you pointed out, Glenn, description of the Persian room, give me the feeling that in this chapter, Wolf is looking at the way that fiction can inform our understanding of other culture. You know, Injun Joe, of course, is the villain in Tom Sawyer, and he dies by being sealed into a cave. Uh, the second thing I want to point out here is that we get another reference to Weir's father as a hunter. But what we learned here is that Weir's father was the kind of hunter who takes his child into abandoned houses in the woods at midnight, or, as Weir goes on to say, any place that you can think of. And I really wish I knew what kind of hunting leads one into classic Scooby-Doo types of situations. Well, well, ghost hunting, obviously. <laughs> right. It has to be. Some kind of combination of deer and ghost hunting. Uh, I think that's what Weir's father was into. Well, I think we've cracked the whole novel. <laughs> I think so. So we, I think we'll have to take that up in light of Aunt Arabella's story about the hotel in Philadelphia as well. So yeah, maybe maybe you have cracked the whole novel, Brandon. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> All right. I'll get us back on track here. So what I didn't narrate in the last section is that the reason that Weir and Dan French are having this conversation by themselves is that they have left the reporter in the freezer. I mean, he, he asked them to, but it has been a while. And so now they go to check on him, except he's not there. Well, he, he is there, just not at first. It turns out that it's a pretty big place and he got turned around. But he also says that he heard a noise that sounds very similar to the type of noise that Dan French described when he was telling the ghost story. And Dan tries to explain the noise away as something that must have come from other people working in the freezer. But actually, there wasn't anyone else in there because the workers were all on break. But that's it. That's all that comes of this ghost story, at least right now. And it is also where we're going to break today. There's another bit in this section that I want to talk about. Uh, before Dan and Weir check on Fred in the freezer, there's this bit about how Dan thinks Weir is just so swell, you know, especially for being the president of such a big company. And then Weir tells Dan, uh, basically, that Dan has the face of someone who is long dead. Uh, and that's 
fascinating. But what I really want to get to here is the contrast between how Dan is talking about Weir, like buttering him up is what Weir says, and how Red Harris, the cold house manager, responds to Weir's present. So we just saw that Dan is like really, you know, sweet on on Weir in this moment. But Red is relieved that Weir isn't there at the cold house to check up on anything in particular. And then, you know, after getting that information from Weir, Weir's there with the reporter, Reg immediately goes into defensive mode, telling Weir that, yeah, I know there's an issue and I'm working on it. And it's as though he's preparing for some kind of attack from Weir. And this interaction struck me as being strange, considering the way, you know, that Weir wonders if the employee in the doctor's room thought that Weir was checking up on him, you know, making sure he wasn't malingering. And what it feels like is is that Weir is clocking his employees' reaction to him, but they don't seem to match Weir's image of himself as just some easygoing, great boss, smiling all the time, just saying hi to his employees. And all of this is even more strange when we think about the way that Dr. Van Nels tells Weir at the in the first chapter that Weir has a high level of self-concern and is perfectly able to capture his exact reflection, to see himself clearly in the mirror that is designed for that thing, designed for a test of that nature. But I don't think that this difference in the weird that way views himself versus the way he's treated by others should surprise us, you know, given even what we've read so far, but especially recently. Because we know that Weir prefers scotch, even though he drinks screwdrivers, in public. He he's kind of has this split, uh, you know, fragmented approach to himself. He over-identifies with his job, as we've said. But then he doesn't reprimand Dan for saying that the powder drink is bad, which seems exactly like the sort of thing uh, a petty tyrant would do. So it's this is a really strange section in terms of work dynamics and interpersonal dynamics. I I, I don't know that it has to feel that strange. I I don't think that the workers are responding to Weir as Weir. They're they're simply responding to him as the Uber boss. And I think this is how we all would respond to the Uber boss or, you know, even any boss really at any level, unless that boss is someone who really works with us on the job, something more of a supervisor than a than a boss or a you know a foreman rather than a boss. I think this is how most of us respond to the presence of bosses in our work environment if we're not regularly accustomed to that, especially if we're envisioning this as shortly after Weir has become the president of the company, and these are people who've been around for a long time, then even their conditioning about what it means when the Uber boss is here has really been set by Julius Smart rather than by Weir. And just generally speaking, you know, the president of the company is not someone who is going to show up on the operating floor of the plant and chew out low-level employees. Like That's what you have middle management for. Right, you chew them out, and and then they go chew the employees out. If that's even how that needs to to function, and I feel like in particular Wolf would have that sort of system in mind, right? Where you know the CEO doesn't berate troops. That's what the XO is for. You know, the CEO gets on the XO's case. The XO then goes and and chews out troops. So yeah, I don't know that this is responding to Weir as Weir here. 
That's an excellent point. But I will say this in a, in a final defense of my <laughs> reading of Weir's uh, kind of split as being, you know, people know deep down he's he's a person you don't want to actually cross paths with, is that we can read Weir's question about being locked in the freezer as kind of menacing. Because Weir asks Dan this question right after Dan says, this orange powder stuff is actually really bad, but at least it's hot. And then Weir says, hey, have you actually ever been locked in the freezer? And this could be read in a sort of menacing way as a sort of threat that Dan just doesn't pick up on. So I, I don't know. I I, the, I think that Wolf is playing a lot, as you're pointing out here, Glenn, with the way corporate structures can function. But he's also demonstrating, at least in my reading, that there's more going on to Weir than Weir's uh, persona allows us to to see. And so on that note, in my mild defense, perhaps weak defense to some <laughs> listeners of Weir being a, a petty tyrant, uh, we'll close out this episode. So once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We have, at this point, run up to our regularly scheduled holiday break, so we're going to be off for a while. But that break gives you an opportunity to check out our other shows, especially if you're traveling for the holidays. Over on Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast, we have done some Gene Wolfe adjacent episodes lately. These have been on Borges and Murakami. Uh, we also very recently covered a classic Robert E. Howard Conan story, The Frost Giant's Daughter, that had me thinking quite a bit about uh, the very first Gene Wolfe story we ever covered, Trip Trap. I also encourage you to check out Hanging Out with the Dream King, Glenn's podcast that he does with, with Brent. They are now in the middle of the fourth volume of Sandman. So if you haven't started, maybe you'll get some Sandman volumes for Christmas and can binge along with them. On Glenn's awesome podcast, Ataz, his uh, speculative fiction review book club. He's got Jack Vance and Rogers Zelazny this year. And he's also done The Book of Three by Lloyd Alexander a few months ago, a book you and I both really love and discovered or rediscovered based on the fact that we both have had sons recently. Yes. And it was awesome to return to this book. This is a book that I I read before Finch was born, but you know he was coming. He was on the way. And so the whole episode really is about that in some way. And then uh, I have continued with the series as well, reading it to Finch. So there might be more episodes on that in the, the future. And of course, if you are caught up on all of that, but are not already with us on Patreon, well, there are nearly, there might even be be over 100 episodes waiting for you there. <laughs> and uh, you're also just in time to catch our Christmas episodes. We're covering another Connie Willis Christmas story this year. And then the second one is a story by Edith Nesbitt. All of that is available on Patreon at patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. So we'll be back here on this show on January 3rd. We'll be covering pages 302 to 311 in the Orb 2012 edition. Until then, we greet you and say Merry Christmas. <laughs>